Uh, we're going to look this morning at another passage of Scripture. I want to read it for you as we start. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Pentecost Sunday, this passage shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read a number of verses together. And so uh, let's just take these in today, try and be present to a familiar passage of Scripture. It says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." They were amazed and astonished, saying, Aren't the, Are these not who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygra, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed. I love that. Saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. We're going to spend most of our morning picking up here in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams even on male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, 
that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus who you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. Last uh, Thursday about 10 days ago to exactly, um, we celebrated the Feast of the Ascension. And then last Sunday when we were together in our home gatherings, we spent time in worship around this incredible event and talked about and, and wondered about the significance of the Ascension. The Ascension of Jesus 10 days before the outpouring of the Spirit at, in the day, on the day of Pentecost was, as I pointed out last week in your home gatherings, a moment that was marked by a couple of really important things. First of all, the ascension was always, in every account, marked by a great commission. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, the commission of God to his people, and in some ways the birthing of the church in the place of mission, happens. Go into the world, therefore, and make disciples of every nation. But if you look at Acts chapter 1, right before the passage that I read, right before the ascension, in verse 4 and 5, we hear these words of Jesus, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the time or season that the Father is fixed by my authority. But then in verse 8, he says this, But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The other thing that accompanied the ascension was promise. And we talked last week in our home gatherings about the promises, the different promises connected to Christ's ascension. But one of them that stands out in a powerful way, and here we hear it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
It harkens back to the gospel passages where Jesus said, it's better for you that I go. Because if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. And he will dwell in you. Right? And here we're seeing this promise at the ascension and the commission of God at the ascension. And at the day of Pentecost, we see these two things come together in an incredible way, in an important way. And that's what I want us to catch today on this Pentecost Sunday is the incredibly important relationship between the Great Commission, the call of God on our lives, and the fulfillment of the promise that he gave with the commission, that he would pour out his Spirit upon us, that we would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Ten days later, after the ascension, after the great commission has been given to people and the promise has been given to people, ten days later, we have the account we just read of Pentecost. My question for you, and I want to give you this question and ask you to kind of hold on to it and ponder it until a little while later we're going to come back to it. But the question that struck me was, why the delay? Why ten days? What do you think transpired in those 10 days? Now, I don't know about you, but when I have to wait or when someone makes me wait for something, my kind of like gut default feeling or, or, or kind of thought is that they are just doing it to exercise some sort of power over me. You know, it's like the, you go right back to when you're a kid and your parents say, yes, we will do that, but you have to wait. I just like, why? We could do it right now. Why would we wait? And so my question is maybe grounded a little bit in my childlikeness. You know? There's, there, there really is not a lot of reason why, and it certainly would have been possible for Jesus, to pour out the Holy Spirit as he ascended into heaven. For Christ to have been drawn up into heaven and tongues of fire to have fallen in the same moment. Why the delay? My guess is it's important that it's intentional. It led the people of God into 10 days of waiting. As we hold that question, let's continue to look at what happens. In that 10 days of waiting, some of what they hold in those days is the commission and the promise. So together they come and they pray. Together they come and they worship. Together they come and they actively wait. But in the waiting, the waiting is a bit charged. The waiting isn't passive. And I would think that the waiting kind of has this growing sense of excitement, anticipation, but potentially even hunger and desperation. Because in one hand, they hold a promise not yet fulfilled, but in the other, they hold this commission. In the other, they hold a God-given sense of calling. That Christ has spoken words like we heard in the gospel passage today. That you, you've seen me do these things. In fact, you will do them and even more. That there's a sense in which what they've watched Jesus do uh, in his incarnation, his life on earth, there's a sense in which now that he's gone, they're supposed to step into those shoes. So they hold that kind of a commission but at the same time, they hold this promise not yet fulfilled. And so my guess is that that 10 days was an interesting 10 days. One charged by this reality of promise and commission. 
They're holding a call, a commission that sometimes we refer to as the work of mission or the work of evangelism. If you look at the Great Commission, it's very clear and it's very on the nose, right? They were to go and to share the gospel with people and to make disciples of those people they shared it with, to invite people into relationship, into this gospel. They were to be evangelists. They were commissioned for mission, to carry out the mission of heaven. What's the mission of heaven? How do we know what it is? We watched Jesus live it for three, four years. Right? Jesus was very clear about why he came. I came that you might have life and life to the full. I came that you might not die, but that you might have life. I came to save that which was lost. And that mission is passed on to his church. We're called to be evangelists. Those who share the gospel of Jesus with the world around us and invite them to respond to this invitation of Jesus to come into relationship with him. To invite them to, ch- have to change their lives. To let Christ be Lord in their lives. To come into this good news. Now as I lay that out and as I talk about that, I think what I'm doing is articulating probably what the people in the upper room were thinking about and pondering. What is this great commission? What does this look like? My question for you in this moment is how do you hold the commission? How do you hold this? How does the great commission make you feel? When we take it out of theological abstraction, when we take it out of distant past or out of the primary spot of a couple of people in the church who seemed really good at it or fired up about it, and I begin to say to each of you, as those who know Jesus, you carry a commission from your Creator to share the good news of Jesus with the world around you and to invite them into that good news. How does that feel for you today? This call to evangelism, to to share the gospel, to make disciples, how does it feel to be called to that, to sit and to hold that commission right now in real time? Many of us struggle to hold it. Many of us have parts of our hearts and our lives that get very uncomfortable or overwhelmed by this commission. Especially when we start to talk about real people. Your neighbor, your co-worker, your family. Right? And I don't think the people in the upper room would have been a whole lot different. One thing I would say is that to hold, to hear fresh the Great Commission, the call of God to us in this way, if we really hold it and sit with us, there will grow in us immediately a dependence, a hunger, a desperation even for the fulfillment of the promise that came with the commission. 
we will start to feel on some level either completely overwhelmed, disqualified, freaked out, whatever, or we will take all that and put it aside and say something along the lines of, I can't do this on my own. You promised alongside that commission that you would pour out your spirit and then I would fulfill it. And as we hold that great commission, there's a right desperation or realization that that is essential. If not for that, this commission is far too great for any of us. And so they wait. They wait for this promise. And they sit with this tension. And they sit with this desperation. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have this incredible account of the faithfulness of God to pour out His Spirit and power comes to the commission. And then starting, I told you we would spend our time starting in verse 14 primarily, we get immediately an incredible example of what happens when power touches the commission. Peter. You remember Peter? You remember him from the crucifixion and the denials? You remember him from the resurrection with his head down low? You remember him in his restoration? Peter, when the people see what's happening and they see the Spirit poured out, they ask a very understandable question. It says they are amazed and perplexed. I, I mean, what is happening makes no sense. And it was, if you look at the text, the reason they all come, it's loud. They're making a scene. And the question is, what does this mean? Friends, many of the people in your life, as they see Christ at work in you, will ask that very same question in one way or another. What is this? And what does it mean? What's amazing is to watch Peter, a man with a commission, like you and like me, who has just received the promise of the Holy Spirit, stand up in the power of the Spirit and answer that question in an awe-inspiring way. He preaches what is potentially the sermon of all sermons. The kind of sermon that if we just read it every Sunday, I don't think we could go wrong. The Holy Spirit is poured out and immediately we are given an incredible example of what happens when the commission of Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Peter, a man whose days before denied Jesus when faced with the likelihood of persecution, now abandons all sense of self-preservation. If you read this sermon, he is taking big risks. Only weeks before, he's denied Jesus because he doesn't want to end up beside him. Now he's calling the very people he denied him to placate with phrases like, you crucified him. This Christ who was God. 
This Peter, a man who has struggled to consistently grasp and articulate the gospel, now declares it with confident clarity. There is no wondering about it for him. He just drops it. What does this mean? Let me tell you. This Peter, a fisherman, remember, good at that, trained for that, but not biblically or theologically trained, opens up the New Testament scriptures and delivers a message that cuts to the very heart of those who are listening. He's pulling quotes out of Joel's prophecy. He's pulling out passages from David's Psalms. And he's bringing light and revelation to them in light of who Christ is and what he's done. A man not trained as a biblical scholar, but trained as a fisherman. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36 He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. How do you think, or would you expect, comments like that in a gospel sermon to land with the hearer? What's happening in the hearts of these Jewish people from across the nations as they hear Peter say things like that? In essence, Peter is pointing out their sin. He's pointing out their rejection of their God. And he's doing it in really stark terms. But he's also pointing out their need for the one they crucified. Because of that sin, they are also coming simultaneously into a realization of their need for Jesus, or at least that's what Peter's trying to do. Are they confused? Are they questioning everything they've ever known? Are they angry? Is he about to incite a mob? Is this the first leg of Peter's crucifixion? What is happening in the audience? What is happening in the heart and the mind of the listener? Well, praise God, the passage actually tells us exactly what's happening. And what's amazing is, it's not what you might think. In verse 37, we're told that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This makes no sense. This is the same people who cried out, crucify him weeks before. Potentially when Peter says, you crucified him, there were people in the listening crowd who remembered when they literally called out those words. 
But their response to hearing the message is not, they're not angry. It's not combative. The response is not shame. The response is not some sort of complete dejection. Their response is, brothers, what shall we do? We are being convicted by this, and we want to respond to this. This must be the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how else we would make sense of what happens in this group. This is a radically different response to Christ than we've seen in this group of people prior The only thing that I can attribute it to, and I think we're right to, because right before we see the sermon, we hear of this outpouring of the Spirit. That what we're seeing is the outworking of the Spirit at work in power through the words and the message of the gospel in Peter's sermon, but also the power of God poured out and at work in the heart and the mind of the listener. Peter doesn't even skip a beat. What shall we do? He just keeps preaching. Repent and be baptized. I'm telling you right now as a preacher, in that moment when, I, when I'm assuming potentially internally that people are a bit uncomfortable in this moment and they're starting to get a little bit freaked out, that I've maybe offended some people and they say, what shall we do? My default or my temptation is to answer back by making them feel better. I'm going to try and like make you comfortable again at least before I go to repent and be baptized. Peter just drops it on him. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Friends, turn from your sin and be united with Christ. I love the clarity of that invitation. Because the question came from a deep place. The question came from a place where the Holy Spirit was at work. Sometimes I think we miss the depth of the questions we bump into day in and day out if we take the time to have conversations with people about God, about Christ. What must I do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In our day and age, the expectation now at this point is that if it doesn't begin Christ's journey to his own cross, which in a way it does, but in that moment, if it doesn't land him in crucifixion, it's at least going to land him in a really bad spot with most of the people listening. Our Canadian sentimentality goes, oh, he's in big trouble. You can't talk to people like that. Look at what actually happens. That day, 3,000 people came into a saving relationship with Jesus. We have to sit with that today. We have to let that hit our own cultural moment as followers of Jesus here in the city of Langley. How do we explain this? How do we explain what we're seeing here? How do we maybe understand it and begin to, in light of our understanding, pray for ourselves? 
say a couple of things. First of all, I think we have to recognize that there is a massive transformation that's gone on here for Peter. This is a different man. This sermon comes out of the heart and the life of a man who has walked quite a journey. But even let's come back to our original question. What's this 10-day delay about? And what happened in the heart and the life of Peter in that 10 days? As he prayed and he sat with the commission that the Lord had restored him back to at the fire. And he sat and he prayed for the fulfillment of the promise. We must consider what's gone on in his life. Could it be that Peter is able to articulate the gospel with such boldness and clarity and such incredible biblical understanding, with such a confidence, with with such authority, because over the past weeks, and especially over the last 10 days, he has allowed that gospel message to radically touch his own life. He has experienced that which he now, in this sermon, is giving back. At some point, did he maybe ask the same question? What must we do? Has he sat and has he listened? Has the gospel of Jesus no longer just been the teachings of of Christ who he followed, or a new philosophy, or set up, has it become the life-transforming good news as it's touched his life? I would, I would say yes. That little makes sense of the transformation we see in Peter otherwise. Might the prayerful And worship-filled days of waiting, might they have been marked by repentance and an uprising of faith? You know, after the resurrection, there's this constant thing when Jesus would show himself to people. One of the things he wanted to talk to them about was their lack of faith. He would show up in his resurrected form, and they would see him, and they would be like, wow. And he's like, what do you mean, wow? I told you this was going to happen. Your friends told you they saw me yesterday. We're going to... And he would speak to them about faith. Could it be that seeing him ascend into heaven, that part of that 10 days was about their own coming into repentance and baptism, their own repentance and grounding in union with Christ in faith? So now when Peter then 10 days later receives the fulfillment of the promise and begins to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, he brings something that he is very well acquainted with himself. And when he says to people, repent and be baptized, he's not doing it from his high horse. He's doing it from the humble place of having just been there himself. Extending an invitation, not because he thinks he just knows what's best for you, i got a plan for your life, but because he's experienced the life that comes in union with Christ as he repented, as he came back in a relationship with him, and he desperately, passionately wants to extend that invitation now to anyone who would ask. There's a transformation in Peter, I think, that we're seeing here, but the other thing we're seeing is the impact of a message that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. What happens when the gospel is shared in participation and concert 
with Christ who is the good news. Over these days, Peter has been united to Christ in a death like his. That journey of denial What a death. Any strength, any ability, any impressiveness that Peter thought he had went down into the grave with Jesus. But at the empty tomb and at the fireside, Peter was also raised to new life in a resurrection like his. And now, that wasn't enough. Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. His God has taken up residence in his life. So when he shares the gospel, he does it with power. The commission is being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's being lived out, fulfilled in the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we too live lives marked by a commission. As sons and daughters of God, he has invited us to partner with him in kingdom work. He's called us to make disciples, to share the good news of Jesus with the world around us, to be men and women who carry that gospel message ever on our lips. How possible? Be ready in any moment to give a reason for the hope that's in you. We are called to the work of evangelism. Each one of us commissioned to share the gospel. And how do we hold this commission? How do we sit with it? It troubles me that for many of us, myself very much included, it can start to feel like a burden that I can't bear or a task that I'm consistently failing at. But I hope you can catch this morning as we reflect on this journey of Peter's that the commission was never meant to be like that. And the thing that changes it is when we remember that the commission came with a promise. And that promise has been fulfilled. That when you walk in the hearts and lives and you minister to the people in your life, your barista, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, when you walk in those spaces and you share the gospel, you don't show up and ask the Holy Spirit to come there. You show up somewhere where the Holy Spirit is already at. And you are full of that spirit. In your baptism, you were given the inheritance of sons and daughters of God. How do we know that we are sons and daughters of God? Paul says, the spirit testifies. And we cry out, Abba. Do we go as those whose God God is our father? And the Spirit of God is at work and fully present in our lives. 
And when we begin to hold the commission in light of this promise, my prayer is that it, it fades away in its weight. It fades away in its sort of like crippling duty. And it becomes instead this natural, organic outpouring of the good news of Jesus that has changed our lives. We need, I couldn't think of a better word. So however much weight you can put on the word need, we need the Holy Spirit to empower us for this work. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission apart from the Spirit. It won't work. And I wonder sometimes if we're so disillusioned, hesitant, and downtrodden because we've tried and failed. I wonder if our hesitancy in evangelism, our tendency towards a less offensive, more palatable message, is actually a sign that we've forgotten the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, and the lives of those God has commissioned us to share the gospel. Peter, in his sermon, he meets people where they're at. I love that we're told the group of people he's talking to are Jews. So we know his audience in this particular moment, right? Jews, so familiar with the scriptures. So what does Peter do? He brings forth the scriptures. He quotes Joel. He quotes the Psalms. He speaks of King David. He speaks of his lineage. Of his line. He knows who he speaks. There's a contextualization happening. He is sensitive to who's listening. But he does not shy away from saying things that that same group who he's being sensitive to may very well respond negatively. So there's a tension at play in his evangelism. And I think this is where the rub comes for most of us. Peter is, in some ways, what we might call seeker sensitive. (laughs) But someone who writes that on their jersey would not want Peter on their team. To speak to a group of people with such clarity about their need for the gospel and about the work and the person of Jesus and about this, especially what shall we do? That's simple. There's only one thing you can do. You must repent and be baptized. You you, you need to turn back and be united to Christ. He does not shy away from the truth or an invitation to respond to it. Peter doesn't only share with them the gospel, but he takes even what sometimes is the more courageous step and invites them to enter into it. Over the past number of months, I've shared this with our parish council, but I don't think I've had a chance to share it with you as a church. The Lord has been really laying it on my heart to pray for the gift of evangelism in our church. I think I'm praying it for the church as a whole after COVID. I think some of our missional kind of evangelistic muscles that we're firing got really atrophied uh, in COVID. It's a bit like 
Uh, we've, been, we've been pretty busy the last little while. That's my excuse. You're going to love this. So I'm into the gym. Getting back is the worst. Right? Because it's like, oh, man. You, you go in and you're just like, okay, here we are, and everything you do hurts again. It's like, oh, right? And I think in some ways our, our evangelism as a church, as a, like in, a, in a grander sense, it, it got a bit atrophied. Because we literally couldn't even talk to people. And if you did, it was almost not worth it because you couldn't understand them through the masks and the plexiglass. So, but God has called us to mission. We, we, we are a people that walk with a commission. And we, why? Because we, we, we have an incredibly powerful message. That the God who created you loves you. And he wants to walk in right relationship with you. And what you need to understand is, unless you have allowed him to forgive you and to draw you back into union with him, you are not in right relationship. I've been praying, and particularly I started by praying, Lord, would you send us a couple or two couples, or some people who have what the scriptures speak of as the gift of evangelism. And particularly, I've been praying for people to come into our community who have the gift of evangelism and love the church. Just love the body of Christ, but just are gifted by God in a, with a charism for evangelism. I want to invite you to pray that with me. Because I think we need it. But this week, as I studied and as I prepared, the Lord caught me. And he encouraged me to, to, to add to that prayer what I think I want to pray together now. And it's this. I want us to pray, and I want to invite you right now to pray with me that God would give to us the gift of evangelism. That he would come by his spirit today, and he would give to you the gift of evangelism. Why would we not ask for that? I, really, I still pray that he would send those. I think we could pray that. As long as we're not praying that God would send some people to do it so we don't have to. And that's what I realized I was doing. I want him to send those people so that they can lead a community of people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit and are excited to do evangelism. Excited to engage the world around them in mission. In the same way that as your priest, I don't do all the priestly stuff around here. We're a kingdom of priests. And as I live that out, one of, my, one of my kind of measures for how am I doing is to watch you and to see how priestly you are. Be the same with any gift. As Adam leads us in worship, Adam does not worship for us. We watch as he leads, and the measure of his leadership in some respects is that the community has been ushered into worship, and we become a worshiping community. And we praise God for those who have been set apart in our community to help lead that. But every one of us is equally involved, and that's beautiful. And that's, I think, the way we need to pray for the gift of evangelism. I think to pray that there would be those who would come and would really teach us and lead us in that. Please join me in that prayer. I actually think God gave me that to really pray for that. Uh, but right now, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask Adam to come. He's going to lead us in a song of worship that helps us to pray.
uh, but we're going to pray, and we're just going to ask then as we come to the table, as we sit in the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out fresh in our lives, that we would have, in a way, uh, a Pentecost experience today. And I actually am praying for you, and I want you to pray yourself, and I want you to pray for the people around you, that the spirit of evangelism, this the gift of evangelism, would be empowered in us, set loose in us. That we would find ourselves coming into moments like Peter did with just a natural boldness and clarity and courage and invitation. These things that mark the gift of evangelism. Jesus, would you come right now and we thank you for the commission. We thank you that you've called us to partner with you in your heart for the world, with, in, in your ministry to those who are lost in sin, who are broken, who are needing to come into a restored relationship with you. And right now I ask ooh, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as a church. Holy Spirit, would you come and fulfill? We declare to you we are desperate that you would fulfill the promise that we would walk in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that as we engage people in real time, in real places, in real conversations, we would, like Peter, we would have the words to speak. We would have the clarity with which to apply and to present the gospel. And we would have, by the power of the Spirit, the joy of partnering with you in the invitation that is in the heart of God to every man and every woman to come into relationship, to receive the good news of Jesus in their lives. Lord, we would be um, amiss to not confess to you the parts of our hearts that get freaked out by the whole notion. And so we ask for courage today. And like the early church often prayed, we pray for boldness. Jesus, teach us to take risks for the sake of Christ. Take risks for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the lost. Even this week, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the people around us and to not shy away from the opportunities that you present to share the love of Christ and the invitation of Christ to relationship with you. Friends, would you stand with me and let's sing this song together as we join our prayers together.